you guys for tuning in today and welcome to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, Zain Razal, and today we'll be talking to Chris Hedges, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, best-selling author, and the host of the Chris Hedges Report on the Real News Network. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Sure, thanks for doing it. Let us begin with this segment with the war in Ukraine. Denazification, demilitarization, was the reasons given by the Russian state um, to go inside Ukraine and start a war. Uh, it said that uh, it would like to eliminate any threats that it poses to its own security and existence of the Russian state. Do you think that these reasons had any legitimacy? Yes, completely. Uh, that doesn't justify the war, uh, which under post-Nuremberg laws is a criminal war of aggression, which all preemptive war is. But I think it's fair to say that Russia was baited into the war, going all the way back to 1989, I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I covered the revolutions in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania. I was there when the promises were made to Gorbachev by Hans Dietrich Genscher, the German foreign minister, Margaret Thatcher, James Baker, who was then the US Secretary of State, that NATO would not be expanded beyond the borders of a unified Germany. Indeed, NATO was rendered obsolete. NATO founded in 1949, was designed to prevent Soviet expansion into Central and Eastern Europe. Gorbachev not only did not pose a threat, the new Russian Federation did not pose a threat in the wake of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Union, but Gorbachev, like Yeltsin and people forget like Putin in the early years, wanted to build a security alliance with Europe and the West. Um, but of course you had powerful forces uh, I would cite two. One, the weapons industry, which saw in the expansion of NATO billions in profits, which came to pass. And you also saw the arrogance and the hubris of Washington, which at the end of the Cold War began to speak about what they called a unipolar world. And by that, it meant total U.S. domination, total U.S. hegemony. They saw correctly that the Russian state was battered, weak, uh, not uh, a threat to uh, its neighbors, much less to the United States. And it felt that it could do anything it wanted, including expanding NATO up to Russia's borders. So I think it were those two forces. Uh, there were frequent protests by Moscow, uh, and as uh, coupled with frequent breaking of promises by Washington, the Clinton administration, for instance, promised not to station NATO troops in uh, the new NATO countries. And we now, I think, have upwards of 100,000. There's a missile base, uh, NATO missile base, now 100 miles from the Russian border. And then we have to talk about Ukraine. So uh, Ukraine which Barack Obama said, uh, recognized as within Russia's sphere of influence. Uh, the, the, U, uh, the U.S. meddled in the 2014, uh, let's call it a coup or overthrow a government that had good relations with Moscow. And then uh, that triggered a kind of civil war. Uh, I think there were 14,000 casualties. Uh, remember, much of that eastern part of Ukraine is ethnically Russian. Uh, and uh, and then Ukraine became a kind of de facto NATO uh, country. 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers were trained by NATO. 
Uh, there were American uh, advisors, British advisors. They were sending weapons. So all of these were clear provocations that Russia had warned against. And we know, for instance, from the WikiLeaks uh, diplomatic cables that were released, fully understood by Russian experts, including the now head of the CIA, who was then the ambassador to Moscow, Burns, who said that meddling in Ukraine would have uh, provoke Russia uh, across the political spectrum. Uh, nobody saw this as, uh, or it was interpreted across the political spectrum in Russia as a threat, would per be perceived uh, as a threat. So the forces that uh, pushed uh, Putin uh, to invasion, and again, I am not in any way uh, endorsing or defending, I'm to understand is not to condone. I'm not, there's no uh, support for the invasion of Ukraine, but it was totally predictable. In fact, I wrote a column at the inception of the invasion called Chronicle of a War Foretold. Uh, so you had Sovietologists like uh, George Kennan called the expansion of NATO the greatest blunder of uh, post-Cold War history. You've had figures like Henry Kissinger, uh, not a figure I have much admiration for, but he certainly understood or understands the danger and has called for swift negotiations uh, and end arms shipments. Uh, and even the New York Times, which has been very pro-war, wrote an editorial a couple months ago, said this idea of uh, allowing Kiev to reconquer uh, territory um, was uh, folly, that, that there would have to be a kind of uh, land for peace deal. Um, but as long as billions and arms shipments continue to pour into Ukraine, uh, you're not going to see a cessation of the war. Uh, and of course, this has made the arms manufacturers uh, staggering profits. Uh, you also have internal forces in Ukraine. I don't think the neo-Nazi element's very large. It's hard to estimate, let's say 10%, but they have militias, armed militias, the Azov Battalion, et cetera. And remember, Zelensky ran as a peace candidate. He, he, he announced that he spoke Russian and he would rebuild relations with Moscow, et cetera. And from all I can read is that these kind of proto-fascist neo-Nazi forces made it very clear to Zelensky that if he wanted to remain in power and perhaps remain alive, he better change his attitude towards Moscow, which he did. So all these are all the forces that led to the tragedy. Uh, it, the, it, of course, the people who are suffering the most are the Ukrainians. Uh, they are essentially pawns in this power play because the reason Washington is uh, providing the, the billions in weaponry and support uh, has nothing, very little to do with Ukraine and has to do with degrading Russia's military uh, capabilities. Uh, who's going to piece Ukraine back together? Well, you can look at past conflicts going all the way back to the war in El Salvador, which I covered, uh, but Afghanistan, Iraq, anywhere else. Uh, so it's Ukrainian blood uh, and it's Ukrainian devastation. Um, and, uh, and I think we have to be fair to the poor families of the Russian conscripts. So uh, it's a very, very cynical move uh, and very dangerous uh, as Kissinger and others have pointed out to corner and humiliate Putin, although that's not gone particularly well, uh, because we're dealing with a, a very significant nuclear power.
I talked to Noam Chomsky uh, over the summers and he said the same thing uh, as you did, that there was plenty of provocation but no justification. I've talked to others on the left, for example, Paul Jay uh, and even Daniel Ellsberg, and they stated that uh, to provide a counter-argument uh, that um, the NATO presence did not uh, uh, threaten Russian existence um, because NATO is also present in Latvia, which is very close to Russia, shares a border. We see that in Scandinavian countries and uh, NATO is also present in Poland. So if that didn't uh, pose a threat to the Russian state and didn't give them, um, Ukraine didn't give um, uh, NATO a strategic advantage, uh, there was no justification or legitimacy to the war. So how do you counter this argument? Because we also see this in mainstream media being made. And how do you see that as somebody who's been covering this issue for such a long time? Well, there was a steady encroachment uh, of NATO on Russian, on Russian borders, which Moscow vigorously protested. But I think Ukraine was just a step too far, understandably. Uh, Ukraine is an extremely large country. Uh, it, it was used twice in the last century uh, to invade Russia uh, at the end of World War I, and then, of course, with uh, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, and then in the century before, of course, Napoleon. So there is historical trauma, but I don't think any, I don't think the United States would have reacted much with, differently if, for instance, this was happening in Mexico or Canada, and we can go back and look at Cuba, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which was solved through almost daily contact between Khrushchev and Kennedy, uh, whereas Washington doesn't really want to talk to anybody. Uh, uh, I mean, there have been communications with uh the Russian defense minister, et cetera. But uh, the, the one attempt we had at negotiations that were set up by Turkey were scuttled by the United States. They, they made it very clear to Zelensky that they didn't want him to go. Let's talk about the recent developments in Ukraine. Ukraine's military has gained significant momentum, according to the mainstream media, since September in pushing Russia out of the northeast and southern part of the country, reclaiming 54% of Russian-controlled territory, including strategic cities. Russia has upped the ante by targeting power and energy infra infrastructures in Ukraine. How do you assess the war at this stage? Do you think the tide is changing in favor of Ukraine and that the sanctions as well as the U.S. military aid is having an effect? Well, it's a kind of ebb and flow. It's a war. It's largely a massive artillery duel along hundreds of miles of front lines. Uh, the Russian military has proved to be rather inept from the inception of the invasion, uh, but by destroying the infrastructure, especially the power infrastructure, uh, this will have crippling effects on Ukraine. It's precisely, by the way, what the United States did before the invasion of Iraq. Um, and if Putin continues to prosecute this war, he has numbers and resources that Ukraine just can't match. And there are stories now of Russia raising a 200,000-man force to uh, begin an offensive. But I think there is a kind of uh, pull, push and pull uh, that we're seeing. We saw 
the uh, uh, Pentagon call for negotiations because, of course, they can read the military conflict in a way that perhaps the civilians cannot and understand that this is evolving into an extremely long war of attrition. Uh, and I think that's a, a better way to characterize it. I don't see that Moscow has lost its resolve. Uh, and, uh, uh, and with the energy infrastructure decimated, it's going to be extremely difficult over the long term for Ukraine to prosecute this war, as was true in Iraq. There's a lot of talks going on about diplomacy at the moment. So beginning December, President Macron stated that the only way to end the war is with negotiation. He held a joint news conference with President Biden at the White House, during which Biden said he would consider diplomacy with Putin to end the war if Putin is ready for it. The German Chancellor Olaf Scholz also reportedly spoke to Vladimir Putin for an hour. It seems that the West is shifting its position from supporting Ukraine military at all costs at all costs towards diplomacy. How do you assess the shift in rhetoric and do you think this is much a, a tactic played by the West or do you think there's some genuine attention to um, halt this war? No, the West is completely divided. So Europe, which pay, is paying the price uh, in terms of energy bills and inflation and everything else, the German uh, industry has taken a tremendous hit. Uh, but the United States is not paying the price. So uh, there is this sentiment uh, within Europe, but that sentiment doesn't exist in Washington. And uh, Washington is quite happy to sacrifice both Europe and Ukraine for its geopolitical ends. Uh, and, and that's what we're seeing. So uh, there's there this division within the West is if it if it continues uh, and if Europe uh, suffers economically at the level that it is suffering now, uh, I think that there will be, it, that will exacerbate uh, these uh, divisions between Washington and Europe. So there's no unification within the West. Uh, Biden, you know, those, that's just lip service. Uh, Washington has made no effort, nor shown any inclination at, to negotiate. I want to rewind a few months. In September, the Nord Stream pipeline was sabotaged. Basically, somebody bombed that pipeline. Western nations, as well as the media, blamed Russia for the attack, whereas the Russian state accused the UK Navy for doing it. Uh, majority media, especially in Germany, did not even entertain the theory that the US could be behind the attacks and were quick to point the figures at Russia. Uh, anybody who strayed away from this and tried to investigate any alternative theories uh, was considered as a conspiracy theorist. According to your assessment, who would have the motive to conduct this as an attack as well as benefit from it? I don't see why the Russians would blow up their own pipeline, but that's conjecture. I was a reporter most of my life, and I can tell you that once a war starts, both sides lie like they breathe. Uh, and I never believed, even the sides I was very sympathetic with, the Palestinians or the FMLN in El Salvador or anywhere else, lying is, is part of the tactic of war uh, for many reasons. Uh, and unless you're on the ground or unless you have hard evidence, everyone should be very skeptical. Um, so I, this is total conjecture. I, I don't 
pretend that I know or have a hard opinion, uh, but I have a hard time understanding why the Russians would have blown it up. I would like to also talk about this uh, justification and understanding thing that you mentioned at the beginning. Uh, in the German media landscape, at least, um, cultural debate that's happening around this war, um, there's a, at the moment you start providing reasons and background and NATO, um, you get put into the, um, I would say, um, drawer, which is called uh, trying to justify Putin's war or a Putin stooge or a, Putin, a Russia state advocate. Um, how do you see this? Why is this tactic being used? Um, and what uh, purpose does it serve uh, by putting people that are trying to provide context and understanding um, in the same place as where Putin is? Well, because they have to create a binary narrative of between good and evil. You know, every, everybody we fight, whether it's Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin, becomes the new Hitler. Uh, the Ukrainians become the the angels or the defenders of liberty and democracy this is a cartoon vision of course of what's happening that but this happens in every conflict but i think it's especially uh, important for those who uh, are prosecuting the war to maintain that narrative uh, because we're not directly involved in ukraine and at a certain point especially with the economic suffering that is afflicting Europe and, up to a lesser extent, the United States, uh, people are going to ask, why are we pumping all this money uh, into Ukraine? Uh, we, we've given more money to Ukraine, the United States, than we spend on the State Department, annual budget of the State Department. Uh, and so I think that there's uh, uh, special vigilance in terms of shutting down voices. But, you know, this is taking that conflict out of context. The Israelis are quite good about doing this vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians, but it's the equivalent of uh, accusing somebody who talks about the Versailles Treaty and the onerous reparations that were imposed on Germany uh, as uh, leading or causing the rise of fascism as being a fascist. It, it, it's, uh, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, we, if we don't understand how these processes work, uh, then we're not going to prevent uh, a, a crisis from happening. I would like to examine militarization, which you just briefly mentioned. The U.S. Senate recently passed le legislation on authorizing a record $858 billion in annual defense spending. Germany, just a few days ago, approved $8.8 billion purchase of U.S. F-35 fighter jets that is produced by Lockheed Martin and can carry potential nuclear warheads. Additionally, the U.S. recently gave $400 million in military assistance to Ukraine. And since Biden administration came into power, uh, we're close to $20 billion. When it comes to social spending, we see countless hours of debates and stalemate. But when it comes to military spending, we don't see the same, let alone discussion in mainstream media, that puts domestic social spending in contrast to military spending. Why do you think this is the case? Because you can't defy defy the war industry, your political career is finished. Even Bernie Sanders won't defy the war industry. And that's why Karl Leibniz called the military the enemy from within. Uh, they're, they're hollowing the United States out from the inside. I don't know if you've been recently to the States, but our infrastructure is out of the developing world. Our trains are a wreck, our bridges and roads are 
decayed, our cities are in ruins. <clears throat> I mean, it's it's a classic oligarch state with a concentration of wealth in the hands of a few and uh, well over 50% of the population struggling at subsistence level. You see, of course, this is true in the UK, which has uh, better social services. I mean, they have the NHS, which we don't have, uh, but th there's this neoliberal assault uh, which is uh, and deregulation, which has distorted these countries and, of course, fuel the rise of proto-fascist movements in Germany and in the United States, Hungary, everywhere else. It, it has the same cause, these vast economic distortions and the callousness of the neoliberal state towards uh, the citizenry. You mentioned Bernie Sanders in the large parts of the US. The left has abandoned uh, the anti-war stance. Even the so-called progressive caucuses are no longer questioning US involvement in Ukraine or uh, involvement in the South China Sea. Why is this the case, especially when we take into account US military adventurism of the last 20 years? One would have thought we've learned a lesson, not just the last 20 years, but if you even look in the last, since the post-World War II period, we should have learned a lesson from Vietnam. How come we have historical amnesia and keep on forgetting what military intervention and adventurism has on our society? Why is this the case? Well, historical amnesia is orchestrated by a compliant media, some of which is actually owned by the defense industry. It's political suicide at this point to take on the war industry, which Sanders knows. They build F-35s in Vermont. Uh, and uh, uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the whole failure of the Sanders campaign is that he never addressed this rampant, uncontrolled, unchecked, militarism. Uh, and that's how empires die, by the way, as Arnold Toynbee and others have written. The, that military establishment, which was true in uh, pre-World War I Germany, was true in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, it was true at the end of the Roman Empire, where they were, the Praetorian Guard was literally auctioning off to the highest bidder the post of emperor. Uh, and, and when uh, that militarism, it's a kind of, it disembowels the country. It's a kind of cancer within. So it doesn't matter how many military debacles uh, it orchestrates, starting with Vietnam, 20 years in the Middle East. Uh, they're never held accountable. They leap from one fiasco to the next. I mean, the only reason we continued the war in Afghanistan, we know from the leak of the Afghan papers, it wasn't a leak, actually, it was, uh, it was obtained through a Freedom of Information Act by the Washington Post. The, all of the military strategists and politicians understood that the war in Afghanistan was unwinnable. But Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, uh, General Dynamics, they were making a fortune. And so the war just continued. Uh, uh, because they can't be crossed. And, and that's extremely dangerous because they set policy. Uh, and their policy is not grounded in any kind of geopolitical logic or certainly diplomacy. It's 
grounded in profits, which is why you see this massive expansion in the South China Sea, uh, the 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 uh, baiting of China over Taiwan. It's money, uh, but it's extremely dangerous. We always look at politicians or the media, but I would also like to focus on society, people in general. Uh, so, for example, when the war in Ukraine broke out, a um, lot of people supported the Ukrainian flag. Uh, in Germany, at least, uh, businesses started uh, doing huge drives, uh, uh, charity, all sorts of uh, events which supported the Ukrainian cause. Um, but, however, when we saw the U.S. invade Iraq, uh, although there was huge demonstrations taking place, we didn't see the Iraqi flag being uh, touted. We didn't see a lot of businesses getting involved and supporting the um, um, standing up against the U.S., calling the U.S. war criminals. We're seeing the same case right now in the Yemenis war or what Israel is doing to Palestine with its resettlements. We don't see these flags. We don't see all of this hype. Can you talk about this uh, uh, cultural hypocrisy? Well, again, it's, it's manufactured, as Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman point out in their book, Manufacturing Consent. So you have worthy and unworthy victims. Palestinians are unworthy victims. Yemeni or Yemenis are unworthy victims. Ukrainians are worthy victims. And the press falls completely in line. So they celebrate the suffering uh, or highlight or uh, report on the suffering of worthy victims and hold them up as exemplars of morality and virtue, and then either ignore or demonize the unworthy victims. That's long been a constant within the press, the commercial media, uh, let's say, not the, maybe not the alternative press that's not dependent on corporate money, but of course they're a marginal presence. Uh, so th that's why, I mean, you know, we should be, if you really care about justice, we should all be hanging Palestinian flags out the windows of our apartments. Uh, or the horror in Yemen, where tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people are dying of cholera and starvation and, and with U.S. weapons. It's a Saudi-run war, but it's U.S. weapons and U.S. logistics that make it possible. So it's that, you know, some, I, I covered the war in El Salvador for five years and uh, we had not only Archbishop Oscar Romero was assassinated, but we had four American church women who were raped and assassinated by the National Guard. At the same time, uh, in 1984, a Polish priest was killed by the communist government. And the Reagan administration used the murder of that priest uh, to excoriate uh, the Polish uh, regime and whip up all sorts of support for its anti-communist rhetoric, and then essentially made excuses for the murder of Romero and then the murder, although they were Americans, of the four churchwomen, uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the UN ambassador, ambassador to the UN for the US, said, well, they were more than nuns, and Alexander Haig, who was the Secretary of Defense, said they probably ran a roadblock, and uh, so that that's what we're seeing play out, the dividing the world between worthy and unworthy victims. And the U Ukraine's, Ukrainians have been anointed as worthy victims. And that's and the press 
you know, it's it's very compliant. Uh, it it uh, falls completely in line because remember, it 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 depends uh, on two factors: advertisers and access to the powerful. Uh, and so when those advertisers or the powerful uh, make demands, uh, they they are heard and, and those demands are followed. Let us close this uh, topic of Ukraine before we move on to other topics by talking about solutions. What do you think um, could be pursued by the West and also what could be done by the people to ensure that this war stops and we move along with peace? Well, the moment the West says we're going to pull the plug on the weapons, uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian government will get to the negotiating table as fast as they can. Uh, and that's really the solution. Uh, I mean, there has to be a demand, a quid pro quo with Russia that, uh, number one, there's a ceasefire. Number two, Russian forces have to withdraw from Ukrainian territory that is not uh, dominated by ethnic Russians. Uh, I think we're gonna, there is going to have to be some kind of trade of land for peace at this point. Um, uh, but as long as billions upon billions of weapons, and it's more than that, there's training and, and the U.S. is providing intelligence reports to Ukraine, uh, and now we're about to send uh, uh, Patriot missiles. I mean, it, it just keeps ratcheting up, ratcheting up. And I know I covered war for 20 years. When you open that Pandora's box of war, you don't control it. It controls you. Uh, you don't know where it goes. Uh, and it, it, it could lead to direct confrontation with Russia, which would be catastrophic. I would like to switch our focus to Iran, which is making a lot of headlines. There was a lot of hope and optimism when President Biden uh, came into power that he's going to re-enter negotiations with Iran and revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the GCPOA, nuclear deal, uh, that was agreed during the Obama's administration but abandoned by President Trump. Um, now we're seeing a lot of uh, anti-government protests going on. Um, people are asking for freedoms and rights um, and w are pushing back against this theological religious government. Uh, should the U.S. reopen negotiations while the human rights situation is deteriorating in Iran? Well, the, I think the Biden administration has decided not to resurrect the Iran nuclear deal because of heavy pressure from Israel and the Israel lobby. So it's, as far as I can read, it's dead. Uh, so there's no incentive to open negotiations for an agreement that the Biden administration isn't going to implement. And uh, do you think that the U.S. is really concerned about human rights in Iran? We're seeing a lot of rhetoric coming, for example, from the Biden administration. Even recently, uh, the German foreign minister, Annalia Baerbock, was uh, very, voiced very concerning uh, rhetoric concerning Iran. Is the West really concerned about uh, public executions, women's rights, and or how do you see that? Of course not. I mean, what about the 140 executions of Palestinians by the Israeli Defense Force, including my colleague Shireen Abu Akhla from Al Jazeera, who was a U.S. citizen? No, I mean, just look at the difference between the rhetoric 
about the egregious human rights violations carried out by Israel uh, and those carried out by Iran. Again, it gets into that bifurcation of worthy and unworthy victims and Palestinians in the eyes of Washington and most of the West are unworthy. You mentioned uh, Palestine. Uh, some people also bring up Saudi Arabia, where public executions happen every year of dissidents, of feminists, of activists. Um, we can also see that in other Gulf monarchies. What, how come the West uh, is not concerned about the human rights situation there? Uh, what are the driving geopolitical and economic factors that hinder any sort of voicing of our politicians and media to address the situation there? Well, let's mention my friend Jamal Khashoggi, who was drugged and flayed to death and dismembered in the Saudi consulate uh, in Istanbul. Um, it was either Ankara, was it Ankara, I believe. So uh, uh, the, I, I spent 20 years on the outer reaches of empire. Uh, the, these forces only quote unquote, care about human rights when it's to their political advantage. Uh, there, it's, it's, there's no commitment to human rights in terms of uh, everybody uh, having a right to civil liberties and protection from uh, extrajudicial killings. It's just, and, and we carried out, look what we did in Iraq. Look what we did in Afghanistan with a drone program alone. And Daniel Hale, the courageous whistleblower who was a drone operator who exposed the drone files, drone documents that showed that up to 90% of the people being killed by our drones were innocent civilians. So uh, that hypocrisy sells maybe in, a, in the United States where most people don't understand the outer workings of empire. But I don't believe it sells in most of the rest of the world. Some people are speculating that uh, the West's involvement in Iran right now in terms of voicing uh, their concerns about human rights situation has to do more with regime change and access to their oil industry. And there's a lot of Saudi Arabian um, lobbying going on to ensure that Iran collapses. Um, is, is there any, uh, according to your assessment, um, any of that taking place behind the scenes? Yeah, well, that's completely what's taking place. They don't care about the Iranians. I mean, uh, look at Saudi Arabia's human rights record is atrocious. Uh, and uh, the few times there have been uprisings, uh, mostly by Shiites, uh, the, the Saudis have responded with disproportionate lethal force, just like the Iranians. So, uh, yeah, the, this is... Uh, a Saudi-driven project, uh, which, as along with Israel, sees Iran as a threat, um, uh, and they are quite happy to use the Iranians who are in the streets to further their ends, but they don't care about the Iranians in the streets. You mentioned uh, Israel. I want to talk about the recent developments there in the Israel-Palestine region. Jana Majidi, a 15-year-old Palestinian, was on the roof in her pajamas playing with a cat uh, when an Israeli sniper shot her twice in her face. You already mentioned this earlier this year. We saw a similar situation with the Israeli sniper killing journalist Sherin Abdul Akhleh. Now we're seeing Benjamin Netanyahu returning 
to power as prime minister and incorporating right-wing forces that were previously banned in Israeli politics. How do you see the situation developing uh, for Palestine going forward? I think what's happening is the mask is being lifted from the apartheid state. Uh, it's always been an apartheid state, but in order for Netanyahu to get back in power, he's had to reach out to these Jewish extremists, these fanatic Zionists and religious bigots. Uh, and, and that has really uh, exposed the lie of the old tropes uh, that uh, uh, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East and uh, hate and racism have no place within Israel and they uh, need to uh, subjugate the Palestinians uh, in order to uh, protect themselves from terrorism. All of that is being ripped away and, and the real face of Israel is being exposed, especially by uh, these figures you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the old Kahana, the Ben Gavir's party. He's an old Kahanist. He was actually denied. Uh, uh, he was rejected by the Israeli military because of his extremism. I covered Rabin. He was very involved in this right wing, far right wing movement uh, that uh, called for Rabin's assassination. They used to uh, at, at Netanyahu rallies, uh, have an effigy of Rabin dressed as a Nazi and burn it. And Leah Rabin always blamed Bibi until she died for her husband's assassination. Uh, and, and I think that what we're going to see is as bad as things are uh, for the Palestinians, and they're pretty bad, um, uh, especially with the numbers of killings. This is the worst death toll since 2006, if you exclude the uh, Israeli bombardments of, uh, uh, of Gaza, um, uh, that'll all be ratcheted up. I mean, we saw, for instance, uh, uh, the uh, murder of this uh, Palestinian. Uh, he was, uh, it was caught on video where he was shot three times and then pushed to the ground and executed by Israeli soldiers, and Ben Gavir called the Israeli officer a hero, um, as, by the way, he calls uh, Baruch Goldstein, the Jewish settler who in 1994, massacred 29 Muslim worshipers in uh, Hebron. So I think that what we're seeing is the rise of a kind of Jewish fascism uh, and uh, in some ways, it's a more honest portrayal because uh, of what uh, the Israeli state is about, the apartheid state is about. It's part of the reason why figures, certainly within the military and uh, other parts of the Israeli establishment, are panicking over this proposed coalition government uh, that Netanyahu is putting together uh, because it's just going to be impossible for them to disseminate the usual lie or lies uh, that has worked to really cover up what Israel is and what it does. Do you think that this will be the collapse of the apartheid state as we know it? Well, it could just become a, a you know, it could have 
it could just become an open despotism. And it's very difficult to, I don't think the apartheid state is going to collapse until we build a serious uh, sanction movement like we did with South Africa. That's why I'm a big supporter of the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement. But I think that that will fuel uh, that movement and fuel the kind of repugnance towards Israel. We've already seen splits now within the uh, uh, the liberal uh, Jewish uh, wing of, of the Israel lobby. Uh, Jeremy uh, uh, Ben-Yamin, uh, he's the president of J Street, this liberal Zionist group, issued a public statement that called uh, the government that Netanyahu was putting together, uh, that said it ran counter to the values of American Jews uh, and uh, said that unequivocal support, uh, what he called unquestioned loyalty to Israel, uh, no matter what, is a disservice to the health of the Jewish community. So I think that uh, that it will certainly weaken the grip that Israel has, particularly within the United States, and uh, that will create more opening for pressure. Um, but I wouldn't go so far as to predict the fall of the apartheid state, although, of course, that's what I'd like to see. I want to move back to domestic issues, censorship and free speech. Elon Musk recently tasked, uh, who took over Twitter, recently tasked journalist Matt Taibbi and writer Barry Weiss to investigate Twitter's past practices. Um, and they've uncovered um, so far that uh, the government was basically flagging certain posts that Twitter should uh, review and that Twitter was using the power of algorithms to uh, censor or to limit the reach of conservative uh, voices. What is your opinion uh, um, about the significance that uh, the recent findings have and about this overall, what it means to free speech in, in the Western society? Well, it confirms what a lot of us knew, especially those of us who were hit by algorithms. But it's nice to have the documentation that proves it. Although Elon Musk is uh, certainly hurting uh, his own cause by censoring journalists who have been critical about him from Twitter, which I think that was a big mistake. I mean, he's a very mercurial and rather bizarre figure. Uh, but I think the upshot of those Twitter files is that, that it does confirm what a lot of us knew. And in that sense, it's an important piece of journalism uh, in terms of its documentation of not just censorship, but the, the collaboration between the national security state and large social media platforms like Twitter. Uh, and that's also what those files have exposed. Constant communication, requests from the FBI, Homeland Security to ban certain people, which they almost universally did, or shadow ban them. They had various gradations of uh, limiting access to certain people on social media. Uh, which they employed. So uh, it, I think for those of us who followed it closely, there weren't any surprises, but we didn't have the documentation to prove it, and now we do. Major media outlets in The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Monde, The Spiegel, El Paz collaborated uh, and published a joint statement for Julian Assange. Um, and I quote here, 
This indictment sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. Why do you think, take, why do you think it took so long for major media outlets benefited so much that benefited so much greatly from WikiLeaks' work to band together and finally release a statement? I don't know because I wasn't on the inside. I'm glad they did it. It's very late, but it's better than not doing it. I thought it was a good statement. I think it will certainly help. Um, whether that will get the Biden. I mean, Biden's a very timid figure, and uh, he also, I mean, he was appointed by Obama's, his vice president, because although a Democrat, he in essence voted Republican. I mean, this guy supported segregation, and uh, you know, he was against school busing, and he was against abortion, and he was one of the architects, not only of the Iraq war, but the massive expansion of our prison system, more than doubling the prison population, arming police forces with military-grade weapons. This is all Biden. Uh, and the CIA wants to punish Julian, I think, for Vault 7, which exposed the hacking tools the CIA has access to in our uh, smartphones and TVs and even our cars everywhere else. Uh, so whether Biden will stand up to them I find that doubtful, but I certainly uh, thought that this statement was important uh, and probably put more pressure on the Biden administration that other supporters of Julian, such as myself, are able to do. Uh, Julian Assange's legal team will appeal the decision, uh, and also they, I think they're taking the route of going to the European Human Rights Court, which the UK is still obliged to. Um, if all of these attempts fail and Julian Assange is uh, extradited to the United States, do you think he will receive a fair trial uh, in the United States? No, of course not. He's being sent to the Eastern District of Virginia for a reason. That's where they lynch everyone. Um, so, but it was, we know that, that it's not a fair trial because I've sat in on the proceedings in London. Uh, look, if uh, it was a fair trial, it would be dismissed because the CIA uh, videotaped his meetings with his attorneys, eviscerating attorney-client privilege. That alone would invalidate, should invalidate the trial. And then there's all sorts of other issues. I mean, let's begin with the fact that he didn't commit a crime. He hasn't committed a crime. Uh, uh, unless you consider jumping bail. I mean, maybe that's the only crime they could pin, a, pin on him. Uh, but certainly for what he's charged with. He's, so uh, those proceedings have a kind of Alice in Wonderland quality to them, you know, where the Queen of Hearts says, uh, let's, announced, let's announce the, uh, the sentence uh, before you hear the evidence. So that's kind of what's happening. And Baritza already has everything written out on her laptop. I mean, she uh, she was the lawyer in the lower court who, uh, uh, it, it's it's a kangaroo court, it's a show trial. It's, it's uh, you know, not uh, the best of uh, British jurisprudence, but uh, stinks of the kind of Lou Bianca. And I think that's why they make it so difficult to cover. It must, for anybody who has any shred of credibility, it must be a phenomenal embarrassment because it uh, it just shows the bankruptcy of the legal system in this particular case. A lot of uh, uh, supporters of Julian Assange also watch our channel. 
uh, for them watching right now. What do you think ordinary people can do in order uh, to uh, stop this extradition or at least uh, create as much as awareness as possible in this case? A protest, because, you know, I was in the courtroom when Baritza started complaining about the noise outside. So they know people are out there. Uh, and I think that's, you know, we have to, pro I was invited, as you may know, to Julian's wedding. Um, there were six of us. We didn't get in. The, the prison authorities wouldn't let us in. Uh, but uh, we, I mean, it didn't matter. They didn't want me to write about it, obviously. So, but I just went home with Stella and uh, John and Gabriel and everyone else from his family and interviewed them and wrote about it anyway. Um, every effort to humanize Julian, of course, is something that they block. Uh, but I think the protests, they have an effect. Uh, they, they, I, I was in the courtroom when she wouldn't have mentioned it if it didn't disconcert her. Chris, to my last question, we are currently in our crowdfunding campaign to ensure that we can continue as an independent and nonprofit journalistic outlet going forward in 2023. How important is it to support independent and nonprofit media outlets like Activism Munich? Well, it's key to support independent grassroots movement that does not take money from corporations and governments because it's the only way you're going to hear the truth at this point. The, the media landscape, the commercial media landscape, including the New York Times, where I worked for 15 years, is atrophied under economic pressure. Remember, their advertising is down significantly, and so they have become even more obsequious to the centers of power uh, because they don't want to lose uh, they don't want to lose anymore, uh, and they, they're even more anemic. Uh, so this makes alternative media that much more important. Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for doing it, Zane. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and visit our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram, and to take part in our year-end crowdfunding campaign so that we continue with our journalism in 2023. I'm your host, San Rosa. See you guys next time. These are the building blocks that make up our organization and the goals we would like to achieve. In order to continue our journalism and realize these values fundamental to our democracy, we need 1,000 supporters in our crowdfunding campaign, donating only 5 euros or dollars per month via Patreon or bank account. Right now, we have only 200 supporters and are not able to take the next step. Our future is in your hands. Strengthen independent journalism and be part of meaningful change.